Good evening. Greta Thunberg accuses world leaders of trying to talk their way out of the climate crisis. Janet Yellen says the nation's credit rating is at risk unless the Congress solves the debt impasse. And a top general explains why he called China. And the mayor finally goes to prison. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. Climate activist Greta Thunberg criticized world leaders for their empty promises and condemned them over inaction in the fight against climate change during the Youth for Climate Summit in Milan today. Build back better, blah, 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 she said, adding world leaders have now 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? There is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, 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 blah. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 25, 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero, blah, blah, blah. Climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Of course, we need constructive dialogue, but they've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? Over 50% of all our CO2 emissions have occurred since 1990 and a third since 2005. All this while the media is reporting on what the leaders say that they are going to do instead of what they are actually doing. And then not holding leaders accountable for their action or rather inaction. And don't get me wrong, we can still do this. Change is not only possible but urgently necessary, but not if we go on like today. Climate activist Greta Thunberg. U.S. President Joe Biden received his booster shot for the COVID-19 vaccination after a short press conference on Monday in Washington, D.C. Biden said boosters are important, but the most important thing we need to do is get more people vaccinated. And if you fall into one of these categories, people over 65, which is hard to acknowledge, adults, I'm only joking, folks. Adults with certain underlying health conditions like diabetes and obesity. And those who are at increased risk of COVID-19 because of where you work or where you live, like healthcare workers, teachers, first responders, grocery store clerks. If you fall into these categories, you're eligible for the booster. And that was the president just before he rolled up his sleeve and got the shot, his third shot. As of this week, 56 percent. Of all Americans have had two doses, two of the COVID-19 vaccination. The World Health Organization has opposed the uh, rolling out of a third booster dose of the uh, Pfizer vaccine here in the United States, saying that there's a greater need around the world in poor countries for the vaccination. And that comes after a court in New York lifted a brief temporary restraining order that had prevented the city from going ahead with his plan to require all school employees and city workers to be vaccinated. That plan now goes on. 
And last night, Republican senators blocked a bill to keep the government operating and allow federal borrowing. But Democrats aiming to avert a shutdown pledged to try again, at the same time pressing ahead on President Joe Biden's big plans to reshape government. The fiscal year end deadline to fund the government passed Thursday bumped up against the Democrats' $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan. Today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sounded an urgent call for Congress to raise the government's borrowing limit. Yellen said that a failure to raise the debt ceiling would likely send interest rates higher and swell the government's interest payments on the national debt. It is imperative that Congress address the debt limit. If not, our current estimate is the Treasury will likely exhaust its extraordinary measures by October 18th. At that point, we expect Treasury would be left with very limited resources that would be depleted quickly. America would default for the first time in history. The full faith and credit of the United States would be impaired, and our country would likely face a financial crisis and economic recession as a result. We must address this issue to honor commitments made by this and prior Congresses, including those made to address the health and economic impact of the pandemic. It's necessary to avert a catastrophic event for our economy. Senators, the debt ceiling has been raised or suspended 78 times since 1960, almost always on a bipartisan basis. My hope is that we can work together to do so again and to build a stronger American economy for future generations. And that was Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi at a briefing later on today said it's time for Congress to come up with an alternative that doesn't leave paying off the national debt as a political football. We really do not have to go through this all the time. And what's important for for you all to know and to report, this is not about future spending. This is about to pay the bills that were incurred. Only 3% of this is about Joe Biden's presidency. The bulk of it is under the previous president's administration, where Democrats and Republicans today added to the national debt because of COVID. We don't share responsibility for a tax scam that gave 83% of the benefits to the top 1% and added $2 trillion to the national debt. But nonetheless, it has to be addressed. And it's about paying past bills. Uh, the, uh, how we go about it, well, that's le- legislation. We're balancing one equity or another as to timing and the rest on that. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Republicans on the Banking Committee argued that Democrats could use their majorities in the House and Senate to increase the debt limit on their own using special procedures in the Senate to avoid a filibuster. Meanwhile, Fed Chair Jerome Powell came under fire from some Republicans over high and growing costs for gasoline, food and other goods and services. Annual inflation, according to the Fed's preferred gauge, reached 4.2 percent in July, the highest in 30 years. And in more news from Capitol Hill, General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, called the 20-year war in Afghanistan a strategic failure and acknowledged to Congress today that he had favored keeping several thousand troops in the country to prevent a collapse of the U.S.-supported Kabul government and a rapid takeover by the Taliban. It is clear, it is obvious, the war in Afghanistan did not end on the terms we wanted. With the Taliban now in power, 
in Kabul. Although the NEO was unprecedented and is the largest air evacuation history, evacuating 124,000 people, it came at an incredible cost of 11 Marines, one soldier, and a Navy corpsman. Those 13 gave their lives so that people they never met will have an opportunity to live in freedom. And we must remember that the Taliban was and remains a terrorist organization, and they still have not broken ties with al-Qaeda. I have no illusions who we are dealing with. It remains to be seen whether or not the Taliban can consolidate power or if the country will further fracture into civil war. But we must continue to protect the United States of America and its people from terrorist attacks coming from Afghanistan. And Mark Milley, General Mark Milley, Republicans used General Milley's comments as evidence Biden had lied when in a television interview last month, he suggested the military hadn't urged him to keep troops in Afghanistan. Milley refused to say what advice he gave Biden last spring when Biden was considering whether to comply with an agreement the Trump administration had made with the Taliban to reduce the American troop presence to zero by May 2021. Milley went on to describe the events that surrounded two phone calls he made to his counterpart part in China in October 2020 and in the days after the attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Milley said nothing he did was meant to undermine the president, then President Donald Trump. The purpose of the October and January calls were to generate or were generated by concerning intelligence, which caused us to believe the Chinese were worried about an attack on them by the United States. I know, I am certain that President Trump did not intend to attack the Chinese. And it is my directed responsibility, and it was my directed responsibility by the Secretary to convey that intent to the Chinese. My task at that time was to de-escalate. My message again was consistent. Stay calm, steady, and de-escalate. We are not going to attack you. On 31 December, the Chinese requested another call with me. The Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia-Pacific Policy helped coordinate my call, which was then scheduled for 8 January, and he made a preliminary call on 6 January. Eleven people attended that call with me, and readouts of this call were distributed to the interagency that same day. I personally informed both Secretary of State Pompeo and White House Chief of Staff Meadows about the call among other topics. In a recently published book, Peril, by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, the reporters revealed Milley made a call to Nancy Pelosi directly after calling General Lee in China to assure the House Speaker, who said Trump was crazy, that Trump would be prevented from launching a nuclear attack. Later that same day, on 8 January, Speaker of the House Pelosi called me to inquire about the President's ability to launch nuclear weapons. I sought to assure her that nuclear launch is governed by a very specific and deliberate process. She was concerned and made, very, or made various personal references characterizing the president. I explained to her that the president is the sole nuclear launch authority and he doesn't launch them alone, and that I am not qualified to determine the mental health of the president of the United States. There are processes, protocols, and procedures in place, and I repeatedly assured her that there is no chance of an illegal, unauthorized, or accidental launch. 
the chairman is part of the process to ensure the president is fully informed when determining the use of the world's deadliest weapons. By law, I am not in the chain of command, and I know that. However, by presidential directive and DOD instruction, I am in the chain of communication to fulfill my legal statutory role as the president's primary military advisor. Since 1945, the United States president has sole and ultimate power to launch a nuclear attack. The president could fire anyone who refused his orders down the chain of command until somebody finally pushed the button, similar to what former President Richard Nixon did in 1974 in the famous Saturday Night Massacre. Meanwhile, the congressional investigation into the attempted insurrection at the Capitol last year is continuing with new subpoenas. The House Select Committee sent four subpoenas out last week to former Trump White House officials, and it's just the beginning. Reports say the House Select Committee is looking broadly at Trump's inner circle. The investigation is also going after Trump's congressional allies, looking for social media posts that might link them to the violent raid by hundreds on the Capitol in an attempt to stop the certification of the Electoral College win by Joe Biden. The FBI probe has led to 600 arrests and is being touted as the largest investigation in the Bureau's history. Among those subpoenaed are Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former top White House strategist Steve Bannon, former Trump Deputy Chief of Staff and Director of Social Media Dan Scavino, and former Pentagon official and Trump loyalist Kashyap Patel. Former judge and legal writer Bill Blum is a regular contributor to the WBAI News. He's penned an article, The New Trump Coup for BuzzFlash. Blum says the nation came closer to a coup than most people think. It was more than a few crazies, but part of a carefully thought out justification to overturn the election results using the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, leaving Trump as president. And Blum adds, it's not over yet. They could hold on to power would be by means of invoking the procedures of the 12th Amendment. Under the 12th Amendment... If no candidate gets a majority of the votes in the Electoral College, the election is transferred to the House of Representatives, which conducts what's called a contingent election. And in that election, each House delegation gets one vote, not each representative. And since Republicans in both the prior and the newly constituted 117th Congress would hold a majority of delegations, they would be able to outvote the Democrats and would be able to declare that Trump was the president. That was the plan. It didn't work, but it came alarmingly close. The other aspect to the plan was, and this is described in the memoranda written by uh, Professor John Eastman, is that the vice president had the authority to throw out electoral votes and declare a winner in the event that no candidate appeared to get a majority of the Electoral College votes. That was also wrong. It was wrong in terms of its interpretation of the law in the 12th Amendment. The vice president has no such authority. And two, it was wrong on the facts because there were no legitimate factual disputes about what slates of electors had been certified. Who's John Eastman? 
He's a respected, uh, or was a respected, hard-right constitutional law scholar. He was once uh, the dean of the Chapman University School of Law in Orange County, and he has, uh, you know, good credentials academically. He's a smart guy, but he's a right-wing activist, and he became one of Trump's top legal advisors. And apparently, he's the one who came up with this 12th Amendment uh, scenario, which uh, I believe was the last step in a multi-step soft coup d'etat that uh, the Trump people were undertaking. It began with voter suppression techniques that go back to, um, you know, the Shelby County versus Holder decision in 2013, and then continued through all the disinformation that Trump put out during the campaign about how the election would be fake if he lost, setting the ground for all of these claims that the election was stolen. And then later, the court challenges, uh, the Trump team tried to pull off a replay of Bush versus Gore. Unfortunately for them, there were seven states involved, not just one state. And all of those states had recounts, which is not what happened in Florida in year 2000. The Florida recount was never completed. So it was very, very different. And even the very conservative United States Supreme Court wouldn't touch Trump's claims with a 10-foot pole. So they were left with the 12th Amendment, and this insurrection was really just an outgrowth of the theory of the big lie. And my point in the new article is that the big lie isn't dying. It's relentlessly being republished and promoted, and that combined with all of these new voter suppression and voter denial laws that are being passed in red states will lead to another assault on democracy in 2022 and most importantly in 2024 unless things really start to change we start to change first by recognizing that a new coup is underway even as we try to fully understand what happened in the first one and that we are determined to thwart it, to stop it. Former judge and legal writer Bill Blum is a regular contributor to the WBAI News. He's penned an article, The New Trump Coup, for BuzzFlash. He's based in Los Angeles. In the nearly nine months since January 6th, federal agents have tracked down and arrested more than 600 people across the United States believed to have joined the riot at the U.S. Capitol. Getting those cases swiftly to trial is turning out to be an even more difficult task. The mountain of evidence in the attack is clogging the D.C. federal courts with January 6th cases, which more than double the the total number of new criminal cases filed there all of last year, dragging out a process already called into question by some right-wing lawmakers who argue it's a waste of time and money to prosecute people accused of low-level crimes. And in related news, a New York arbitrator has rejected former President Donald Trump's claim that Omarosa Newman, a former contestant on The Apprentice and presidential aide, violated a nondisclosure agreement by writing a tell-all book about Trump. The arbitrator declared the agreement was invalid because it was too vague to be enforced. Trump's campaign will now have to pay her legal fees. In 2018, Newman wrote a book about Trump called Unhinged, in which he depicted Trump as bigoted and racist and disparaged his mental capacity.
And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Prince Andrew has acknowledged through his lawyer that he's been served with a lawsuit by a U.S. woman who says he sexually assaulted her, clearing a hurdle that has stalled legal proceedings for several weeks. In the lawsuit, Virginia Jeffrey claims Andrew abused her on multiple occasions in 2001 when she was under 18. His lawyer has called the allegations baseless. In late 2019, Andrew told the BBC Newsnight program that he never had sex with Jeffrey, saying it didn't happen. Meanwhile, in a courtroom yesterday, the popular R&B singer R. Kelly was found guilty of eight counts of violating the Mann Act and a count of racketeering by a federal jury in Brooklyn yesterday. Born Robert Sylvester Kelly, the singer faces up to life in prison on the convictions when he's sentenced next year. Kelly, who is wearing a blue suit and white mask, sat stone face next to his lawyers as the verdict was read. The charges date back decades and involve six complaining witnesses, including the late singer Aaliyah, who died in a 2001 plane crash at 22. Kelly had maintained his innocence since he was indicted in 2019, his defense depicting his accusers as groupies lying about their relationship with him. Kelly's lawyer, Thomas Farinella, responded to the verdict on Twitter, calling it an aberration. The jury of seven men and five women deliberated for about nine hours across two days before reaching their unanimous verdict. Federal prosecutors called 45 witnesses to the stand, 11 of Kelly's alleged accusers and eight former employees included. While Kelly's lawyer portrayed the multi-platinum singer as the victim, invoking Dr. Martin Luther King in closing arguments that called on jurors to show the sort of courage that defined the civil rights movement. The racketeering part of the charges arose from the prosecutor contention, Kelly acted as a predator who led a criminal enterprise of employees who recruited underage girls across state lines for sex. According to the charges, Kelly confined the women to a Chicago home and banned them from leaving or even eating without the singer's permission. He was also accused of knowingly infecting women with the sexually transmitted disease, herpes. A former tour manager for the singer testified he got a fake ID so Kelly could illegally marry then 15-year-old Aaliyah after believing he had made her pregnant, reportedly to shield himself from charges of having sex with a minor. Kelly also faces multiple sex charges in Illinois and Minnesota, including aggravated sexual abuse, child pornography, enticement of a minor, obstruction of justice, prostitution, and solicitation of a minor. The charges against Kelly came in the midst of a media frenzy after the release of a documentary called Surviving R. Kelly and an infamous interview on CBS This Morning. It was the first prominent Me Too trial where the accusers were mostly black women. Accusers in cases against movie mogul Harvey Weinstein and comedian Bill Cosby were mostly white accusers. A jury of seven men and five women deliberated for about nine hours across two days before reaching their unanimous verdict. R. Kelly faces 10 years to life in prison at his sentencing, which is scheduled for May 4th, 2022. In more local news, caving in to weeks of pressure from lawmakers and advocates, Mayor Bill de Blasio visited Rikers Monday afternoon, that's yesterday, but left the details of what he saw inside the troubled facility mostly unsaid. For months now, the Department of Correction has been struggling to respond to staffing shortages along with a growing jail population that have created conditions some describe as a humanitarian crisis. Detainees and their families have said they're lacking access to basic things like food and water and medical attention. Detainees also report they've been held in intake facilities 
facilities for days and crowded cells designed to only fit a handful of people. So far this year, 12 people have died while in the custody of the Department of Correction, five of them by suicide. de Blasio spoke at a news conference after touring the island prison. We needed to make sure that the health care teams are getting the support they need. Their role is crucial. They need to be supported. They need to be safe. The changes they need in terms of staffing, in terms of the physical reality, additional help we can bring in, that was a crucial component of this. Third, the intake process. The intake process has to be sped up. We looked at the facilities, looked at the changes that have been made, the changes that have to be made. The bottom line is all these things have to happen immediately. Fewer inmates, uh, faster intake, a better, more secure healthcare situation, and getting back to work the folks who have not been working. And I think that message has been received loud and clear. We want to support the officers who are doing the work. We care about them. We appreciate them. We're going to support them, incentivize them, give them real support. But the folks who are not doing their job are going to suffer the consequences because they're letting down their fellow officers and everyone in this city. So that's abundantly clear. Final point. What we have to do, we can't do it today, we can't do it tomorrow, but what we have to do as quickly as possible in the city is get off Rikers Island once and for all. That plan is in place, it is moving rapidly, that is the bigger solution. This is not a place that should continue for the long haul. We need to move these community-based jails. They They will be humane, they will be modern, they will be an environment that's right to rehabilitate people. That work can't happen quickly enough. But in the meantime, we're going to keep driving down the population and making the other changes we need. As Mayor de Blasio. And finally, public advocate Jumani Williams is considering running for governor, setting up a potential Democratic primary challenge to Governor Kathy Hochul next June. Williams, who unsuccessfully ran for lieutenant governor against Hochul in 2018, has formed an exploratory committee and says he'll make a final decision about his campaign in the next few weeks. In a statement, Williams said, I've spent my entire career, most of my life, pushing and advocating and fighting on behalf of the people and against injustice and inertia. What's wrong in New York? and what's stopping the people in power from changing it. I'm proud to have had many successes in that fight. Mayor Bill de Blasio today praised Williams but noted that he's also considering running for governor. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>